60 of Curiosityness, part three of the Moon Landing 50th anniversary series. I'm Travis DeRose, the host, and this episode I have on David Chudwin. And David was actually at the launch of Apollo 11. He was a teenage space reporter, he was a teenager who had NASA press credentials. So, he literally goes through and like tells us and describes exactly what it felt like, what he saw, what it smelt like, everything like that, of what it was like to be there on that day and see the launch and then kind of be at NASA and have press credentials and access to all that stuff throughout the whole mission, throughout the whole Apollo 11 mission. So it's really cool to talk to him and, and you know, kind of get transported back in time and, and feel like you were there. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, without further ado, here is David Chudwin. And boom, we're on. What's up, David? Not much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, thanks for being on. I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk to you. I got your your book right here. Great. You, it's, I love the title. It explains exactly what it is. <laughs> I have my book, too. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, and it's crazy. You were there. Does it? I mean, does it feel like it was fifty years ago? No, it's it's like a, a matter of great surprise to me that um, first of all, I'm still around fifty years later, and secondly, <laughs> that the memories are so clear. It just seems like yesterday. Really? Yes. Why, why do you think that is? Is it because you've sort of recounted the story so often, or you have photos to kind of remember it more? Or what is it? Just such a important event in your life that it's hard to forget no it's because it was such an important event in my life the um except for getting married and my two kids really the high point of my life was the three or four days uh, before the launch of apollo 11 and the the time through the moon landing where i was at the kennedy space center yeah man i yeah just reading through your book i was so jealous of you to to be there it sounded so incredible and, and awesome well, I kind of grew up with the space program. Um, you know, I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, if I would have been a little bit er- younger, I would have been in high school and not eligible to cover it. If I would have been a couple of years later, I probably would have been out of college by then. Yeah. Uh, so it was a true window of opportunity. Yeah. So, let, I mean, let's just get into it. How, how were you able as, you know, a 19-year-old to get NASA press credentials? Well, I was a very lucky guy. Um, <laughs> In high school, I was uh, joined the high school newspaper, um, and when I got to the University of Michigan in August 1968, um, I decided to join the Michigan Daily. Uh, the Daily is an independent student-run newspaper that's been there since 1890, wow. and it's taught generations of journalists how to be journalists, because there's no journalism department as such at the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, at, least, at least at that time. So I joined the Daily, and... I was a little bit odd uh, in the sense that everybody else there were political science majors, philosophy majors, 
I was perhaps the only person in the entire building who had any interest whatsoever in space or science. Uh, so after the first Apollo flight, Apollo 7, in October 1968, um, I volunteered as a freshman to write the newspaper's editorial about it. Now, normally freshmen did not write editorials at all. Uh, but uh, again, I was, I was the only one. I was kind of the de facto space reporter. Right. So, so um, I wrote an article, uh, which stands up pretty good even today. It was called A Case for Going to Outer Space. Nice. Uh, but then in December 1968, uh, when I was back home from college uh, in Illinois, um, a friend and I got together. Uh, we've been friends for many years and both interested in space. And he suggested, why don't we go and see a Saturn V launch this summer, meaning the summer of 1969? Uh-huh. Uh, and, um, you know, we were 18 then. So at least at that time, we could rent a car. We could get a motel room. Uh, we could even drink beer at that time at age 18. Uh, and uh, so um, we decided to go and look at the NASA schedule. And we saw that the Apollo 11 flight was scheduled for July. And this was perfect right in the middle of our summer. So we decided to go down there one way or another. But I told them, I'm going to get us press credentials. Huh. I, you know, I was very kind of optimistic, uh, perhaps overly optimistic. Because when I applied to NASA, they said uh, there, were, there were two big problems. Number one, they didn't accredit student journalists. And number two, they had over 3,500 requests for press passes. Yeah. And so to make a long story short, what happened was a colleague of mine was working in Washington that summer as an editor of something called the College Press Service, which was a group of over 500 college newspapers. And he went to NASA and personally argued that I would not be covering it for the Michigan Daily. I would be covering it for this college press service network. Yeah. And uh, with a lot of good persuasion, uh, about a month before the launch, I had my NASA press pass in the mail. Man, incredible. So, you know, being that you're one of the youngest people there and, and you have these NASA press credentials, did you feel sort of out of place? No, not, not at all. I mean, the, the other reporters kind of ignored us. Uh, <laughs> we were kind of not even worthy of mention. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so, um, but, but no, from the beginning of this trip, um, you know, luck favored us. Uh, you know, there's instance after instance where we really had incredible experiences uh, with, with this. Uh, just as an example, um, Flying down on the plane, we saw this older woman who we recognized, and it turned out it was, it was Rose Cernan, astronaut Jean Cernan's mother. Wow. We rode down on the plane with her. We talked to her a little bit before. We had recognized her because we had been to a, um, a, uh, a um, previous uh, visit that Cernan and Stafford had made to the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. We recognized her. Anyway, we got down to Florida, and um, she brought us over to these other men there. And she introduced us. And Cernan couldn't pick up his mother that day. He was busy. So Alan Bean picked her up from the airport. And he was accompanied by James Irwin, Charles Duke, and Bruce McCandless. Oh, my gosh. So within 20 minutes of landing in Florida, we met three people who would eventually walk on the moon. Oh, wow. Such a cool story. Yeah, it must have just been so surreal for you, you know, at 19 to... I love how you're just like, you know, you guys wanted to go see, go down there and see the launch for Apollo 11. 
And then you're like, well, I'm going to get press credentials. Let's do it. And then you made it happen, man. It's awesome. Well, you know, I, I got a number of life lessons from, from going down there. And um, one of them is uh, aim high. Yeah. You know? and, and the second one is never give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at one point it looked pretty bleak that we would not get press credentials. Uh, and there were, we would just be one of the over one million people that showed up there to see the launch. Oh, wow. And uh, instead, we were among 3,500 uh, journalists from around the world who were there. And we had incredible access because of the press credentials. So. Yeah. So what kind of stuff were you uh, able to access? What kind of places, what kind of people were you able to, to meet and see? Well, in terms of the places, um, we took two very long uh, press tours. These were like small press tours. There was just journalists uh, and a, um, a NASA contractor. And so to give an example, we were able to go in the vehicle assembly building and we got within 100 feet or so of the base of the Apollo 12 Saturn V, the one that was going to go up for the next flight. Yeah. And we were able to get right up at the, at the base of it. The other thing is we were able to go up to all the way to the top of the VAB uh, and look down and see the Apollo 11 command module sitting on top of the stack. We were right there with it. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, then at the launch control center, uh, we were able to actually get onto the floor of one of the firing rooms. There were three firing rooms that were active. We couldn't get on the floor of the Apollo 11 one, but we got on the floor of the other one and were actually able to like sit at the flight director's council. Oh my gosh. With all the electronics and everything. Yeah. Uh, as far as the Apollo 11 Saturn V rocket, um, we were able to get as close as 2,000 feet from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, at night, they took us out there, and there were these um, high-intensity xenon lights that bathed the rocket, and it was the most incredible sight. You know, I described it in my little diary as a jewel in the night. Mm-hmm. Um, huge shafts of light uh, on either side of it. So that was some of the physical things. And then um, we were at two large, well, two large NASA press conferences and had a special interview. The press conferences, one of them was called the Center Director's Briefing. And I was in the same room there, just a few feet away from Werner von Braun, uh, from Kurt Debus, the director of Kennedy Space Center, from Robert Gilruth, the head of the Manned Spacecraft Center, and from Dr. George Miller, the head of Manned Spaceflight then. Um, later on, we had a, I had a, and my friend had a personal 20-minute interview with George Miller uh, about the future of spaceflight, one-on-one in his Holiday Inn hotel room, along with a NASA public affairs officer. Wow. Uh, I later wrote an article about it. Um, the other cool briefing we went to was the pre-launch briefing, and there were most of the key officials of the Apollo project. Um, George Lowe was there, the head of the spacecraft program. Um, uh, Deke Slayton was there, the head of the astronaut office. Uh, Charles Berry, the head of medical affairs. And there were just a whole bunch of people there um, giving a briefing on readiness before Apollo 11. Yeah. So is this, when you're, this kind of stuff, is it um, more like you're there just kind of sitting in on it so you can watch and see what's going on? Or is it kind of an interactive Q&A type stuff with the press and, and people there? Well, um, because of so much press, we didn't get to ask any questions, but we could have. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then we talked to personally some of the people in, involved uh, as well. So, for example, on the morning of the launch, we ran into astronaut Fred Hayes, uh, who was the um, backup lunar module pilot and had been up all night turning the flipping the switches in the Apollo 11 spacecraft, getting it ready to go. And we had a chance to talk to him uh, in, in the morning after, just after the launch. Oh, OK. Man. So fun. And you had already, I mean, this was such a huge treat for you because you already knew basically all these people and all this stuff going into it, right? Right. Yeah. I, I had been well-versed in the space program. Um, the first book I ever owned at age eight was called Space Pilots by Willie Lay and a German rocket scientist. And this was about the future selection and uh, travel of astronauts into space. Mm-hmm. You said that you could stay, or you couldn't go within 2,000 feet of the actual Apollo 11 rocket, correct? Correct. Was that for um, security reasons, or was it just because there was so much maintenance and and work being done on it at the time that they didn't want you to get in the way? Well, if you look at a Saturn V rocket, what it really is is a controlled bomb, okay? Um, It's loaded with um, over 700... uh, gallons, 700,000 gallons of kerosene. Um, It's it's loaded with um, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Uh, In fact, it's funny because there was a big round tank not too far from the pad for the liquid hydrogen. And it it had a sign on it said liquid hydrogen, no smoking. (laughs) Uh, So there were all kinds of, um, you know, rocket propellants or hypergolic uh, fuels, uh, so it was it was a you know kind of dangerous place. Uh, the we watched watched the the rocket from the actual launch from three and a half miles away, mm-hmm. and that was where the VAB was, where the launch control center was. And you might say, why three and a half miles away? Yeah. Well, if the rocket exploded, that was the closest that you could be without being killed. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's comforting. That's still. Yeah. So for us to get within 2,000 feet of the rocket was, was pretty damn close. Yeah. Man. And then so at night with these, you know, these big lights on it, what is, was there a purpose for those lights or was it just to make it look cool? Um, I, I think it was to, um, you know, just provide good visualization in case there was any problems with, um, uh, you know, a leak, say, in, in rocket propellant or any security issues or stuff like that. Right. Uh, was the, was the main reason, but it was just an absolutely magnificent sight. Yeah. Oh. The, the photos, the photos I took don't do it justice because it was very hard to, with a manual camera. The camera I brought with was a 1940s Kodak Retina camera that belonged to my dad. Uh-huh. Um, th- this was before the days of modern cameras. Okay. It was totally manual. You had to set the F-stop and the speed, and I used color slide film which didn't get developed for two weeks. So I had no idea if any of the pictures I took out actually came out. Oh my gosh. That, that anticipation is something that I am not used to today with our digital stuff, but I can imagine that was tense. Well, lo- looking back, what's remarkable to me is that we got to the moon with the technology that we had then. Yeah. You know, 50 years ago, um, the only computers were mainframe computers, which would take up a whole room. Okay. The Apollo guidance computer, the Disky. Um, had less capability than any cell phone today. Uh, There was no internet. 
Um, there were no social media. Uh, the way we phoned in our stories, I, I wrote in my manuscript that I phoned in the stories, and my editor, who's like in her 40s, said, what did I mean by that? Uh-huh. You know, we didn't have any access to teletypes. There were no computers or internet. So I actually had to get on a, a rotary telephone and dial up a rotary telephone, call the newspaper office, and then literally read word by word the text to someone else at the other end who was sitting at a typewriter and was typing it. <laughs> oh, man. But it works, right? It, it worked. And, and I think that um, another example of the technology, you know, there were like thousands of sensors on the Saturn V rocket. Mm-hmm. Each, each one of those had to be hardwired to the launch control center because they, they had no other way of doing it. Oh, my gosh. So could you... Were, were there just like miles of wiring? Was that stuff visible? No, it wasn't visible because it was well protected. But no, there was miles and miles of wiring. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's just so fun when you really dig into it and think of like the stuff they had to do. It's, it's, it's crazy. It, it's, really, it, it's really incredible that they were able to bring this off. And what's even more incredible is they did this in eight and a half years. Yes. President Kennedy proposed going to the moon on May 25th, 1961. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there, there were, the only experience the U.S. had in space then was 15 minutes of suborbital flight by Alan Shepard. Right. Okay. Um, there had never been a space rendezvous. There had never been a space docking. The thought that you could um, rendezvous and dock in lunar orbit was considered crazy then. Mm-hmm. So do you remember when President Kennedy kind of made that announcement that they wanted to get in space by the end of the decade? Yeah, I I do. I was 10 years old then, and I didn't I wasn't old enough to understand all the implications, but I understood what he was talking about. Plus, I had been a big fan of science fiction ever since I was very young. And um, there was, for example, a group of um, novels written by the late science fiction writer Robert Heinlein. These were so-called juvenile models, novels, uh, and they talked about, you know, living on the moon, um, having jails on the moon, uh, having revolts of the lunar inhabitants, you know, against the Earth. Yeah. You know, so all this was a part of science fiction, and Kennedy proposed to make it science fact. Right. I mean, you were only 10 at the time, but do you remember if the if people felt it was doable or did they feel like it was always going to be science fiction? I think that the average person, I don't think really understood the enormity of the task. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the people involved, uh, like I had mentioned, Robert Gilruth was head of the manned spacecraft center. Um, He really thought that this was uh, really, really difficult to do. (laughs) Uh, And, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't sure that it was even doable at right. the time. Man. But, but that, that decision's interesting because there have been declassified documents that produced a memo that President Kennedy sent to Vice President Johnson um, after Yuri Gagarin's flight and after the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion, which was a failed attempt by the United States to, to get rid of Castro. Mm-hmm. But Kennedy wrote him a very specific memo saying, what single project can we do in space that we can beat the Russians with? Yeah. And uh, so it, it was definitely a product of the, of the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's just so, um, 
just so crazy to me to think back that this was all almost all fueled by kind of a, a competition to beat the Russians. Right. Um, there's, there's absolutely no question about that with the documentation. Uh, and at that point, the United States even had no idea how they were going to get to the moon. There were three competing concepts to get to the moon, and each of them had proponents. And it wasn't until um, uh, on my 12th birthday, on July 11th, 1962, it was announced the method that the U.S. would go to the moon, the so-called lunar orbit rendezvous method of going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that in and of itself is a fascinating story, how um, an engineer, John Hobolt, and a group of engineers at, at Langley prevailed over uh, the proposals um, of uh, Werner von Braun and the Marshall Space Flight people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that, you know, just reading up, it, you just kind of take it for granted that, you know, well, yeah, there's a lunar module, there's the service module, of course, this is how it works, but there must have been an endless amount of ideas of how to possibly piece everything together and get to the moon. Right. The the most difficult thing about lunar orbit rendezvous was that the people were going to rendezvous and dock, you know, 250 million, 250,000 miles away from the, from the earth. When, when the time they suggested that there had never even been any earth orbit rendezvous at all, even in earth orbit, let alone at the moon. Yeah. So, it was kind of an audacious plan, but all the engineering arguments were, were in favor of lunar orbit rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cool. Okay, so let's, let's jump ahead. I want to I get to like kind of the what's going on maybe on the day of the launch that you're there. So like you're there in the morning and you get to see the astronauts walk out, correct? Right. Um, we set the alarm for 4.30 in the morning on July 16th, 1969. Um, we were staying at the Sea Missile Hotel, Motel, mm-hmm. which was kind of an old, somewhat seedy place, but, <laughs> but it was kind of a low, our, we were on a low budget operation, let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, so we couldn't stay at the Cape Kennedy Hilton or any of the nice hotels. So we stayed at kind of this dive. The only advantage was that it did have a swimming pool. Nice. Um, <laughs> and it advertised in the, in the front on the sign, it said TV in every room. Every room air conditioned. Dream come uh, true. That's all you need. Right. Especially, especially for Florida in July. Yeah, that's a good point. So we had, we had signed up uh, and been able to get a, uh, be one of the few reporters out of the 3,500 who, who were to go and see the astronauts come out in their spacesuits, the so-called walkout of the astronauts. Mm-hmm. Um, they had spent the last few days in what was then the Space Operations Building, or MSOB was the NASA abbreviation for it. Um, today it's called the Armstrong ONC, Operations and Checkout Building. The same building is still there. Uh, so they had their crew quarters there, and then early in the morning um, they had a, a breakfast with uh, some other astronauts, including Deke Slayton, uh, and then they were suited up in their white spacesuits. And um, among the, the people suiting them up um, was Joe Schmidt. Uh, who just recently passed away at 103, I believe, uh, who was the guy who suited up Alan Shepard for America's first manned spaceflight. So uh, he was there. And then there was another, a young guy there who was 23 at the time named Ron Woods. Mm-hmm. And Ron Woods went on to, um, to be with NASA for decades later and uh, became a space artist. And actually, I'm a friend and customer of his space art. Oh, nice. Uh, 
he specializes in doing pictures of spacesuits, which is not surprising. Yeah. Um, and any, anyway, so um, we got there on this bus. There were like three buses, three or four buses there. The buses let us off, and there's a roped-out area in, in front of us. So as we get out the buses, all the reporters run like a rugby scrum with their elbows flying um, to get a space behind the, behind the ropes. Yeah. Because otherwise, you would be at the back. Uh, and so we were kind of penned in there behind the ropes. Uh, Deke Slayton came out first and did a television interview. Uh, and then around 6.30 a.m. in the morning, uh, down the distance in the end of the corridor, we see a white dot. Oh, and yeah. as the white dot approaches, we see that it's Neil Armstrong leading the three astronauts. Um, so it was Armstrong first, uh, and, and then Mike Collins, and finally Buzz Aldrin. And they were followed by... Uh, Joe Schmidt and Ron Woods, the spacesuit techs, and uh, Deke Slayton and a couple of firemen. Mm-hmm. So, meanwhile, the, all the reporters and photographers were going crazy as they walked down with their elbows flying, trying to get pictures um, of, of the astronauts. And again, the, this was before digital cameras. Um, we had no idea whatsoever if any of the pictures turned out. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, in, in my book, though, I show some of the pictures that I was able to take that morning. And in some ways, that was one of the emotional high points of the trip for me, because we saw the last few steps on Earth of the first men going to land on the moon. Yeah. Yeah, it is so cool to see the photos that you actually took. You were actually there. It's awesome. And, you know, some of them aren't perfect. I think one, the, the exposure was off or something, so you had to convert it to black and white and, and stuff like that. But you were there. You took the photos. Right. And um, that was, uh, you know, one of my other life lessons is be prepared. And <laughs> the, the, the friend of mine who came, you know, brought a Brownie Instamatic camera. And the pictures he got were really second or third rate. Um, I think these pictures stand up pretty good um, 50 years later. Uh, I had the slides uh, scanned professionally at a photo lab about six or seven years ago uh, to di- digitalize them. And uh, um, uh, again, in the book, I think that's one of the really strong points of the book is these original photographs. Uh, You know, everybody has had views of Apollo 11, but mine are different than kind of the standard NASA pictures. Yeah, that's true. It is a a different feeling that your photos have, which I I enjoy. So what was the, I mean, as as the astronauts are walking out, what was their kind of demeanor? How did they, how did they kind of present themselves? Was it kind of a, a proud, excited kind of thing? Was it nervousness? How, did you get a sense for that? No, it was joy. It was <laughs> excitement and joy. Um, they um, uh, gave us, uh, you know, thumbs up signs. Uh, they smiled. Uh, I missed the classic picture of Neil Armstrong giving a thumbs up sign because some other photographer stuck his head in the way oh. uh, that, of that shot. But I did get um, Buzz and uh, Mike Collins on, on that shot. Yeah. But no, they were very happy. It, it only lasted like a couple of minutes. It was very, very brief. But uh, uh, again, I think for everybody there, it was a very special moment. Yeah, yeah, so cool. And what was the vibe of the crowd? Was everybody kind of cheering and stuff? Or what, was, what were they doing? Well, they were cheering and they were madly taking pictures yeah. as, as quickly as, as, as they could because it was very, very brief. And kind of elbows were flying to position. And it was... Um, Kind of a contact sport. Yeah. <laughs> so
So, okay. So after the, so where do the astronauts go on that walkout? Are they loaded into a vehicle to transport them? They got into a NASA mobile van that took them to pad 39A where they went aboard the, um, you know, where they went aboard their, their spacecraft. Mm -hmm. uh, so then my friend and I, we went on a NASA bus um, and headed back to the press site. The problem was, was that even within Kennedy Space Center, there was a massive traffic jam that day. Uh, and there was an even bigger traffic jam outside Kennedy Space Center as a million people were trying to find uh, their uh, you know, best viewing possibilities. So we went to the um, Pad 39 press site, which is adjacent to the uh, Launch Control Center, uh, and got out, out there. But then we saw that there was a NASA bus going to what was called the VIP site. And so, so we jumped on that. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and NASA had invited uh, several thousand people to the launch. Mm -hmm. uh, and it included a wide range of people. There were, there were um, politicians like President Johnson was there uh, with, with Lady Bird. Um, uh, William Westmoreland, the Army Chief of Staff and former Vietnam commander, was there. Uh -huh. uh, there were a bunch of senators there. Uh, there were entertainers like Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. The TV entertainers were there. Huh. There, were there were actors there. Hugh O'Brien was there. Uh, and um, so NASA invited all these people there. And so we decided that we would kind of people watch while waiting for the rocket to go off. And it was, it was fascinating. So, that, so the, all those folks kind of went to the VIP area, which you guys were managed to get to also. Right. We kind of snuck in there. Nice. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's like an extra little, you know, fun, I don't know, side thing that all these, you know, huge people are there to watch us. And of course they would be, but you got to kind of rub elbows with them a bit, huh? Right. Exactly. And again, um, there's some interesting pictures in the book that show some of these people. Uh, it was very difficult with the book to reduce the number of pictures. Um, the pub my publisher, Lid Publishing, was very generous, and there's 65 illustrations in the book, which is a lot. But I could have had a hundred. I'm sorry, 85 illustrations in the book, but I could have had actually 180. Oh my gosh! Illustrations. So a, a lot. We you know we had to eliminate a lot of photos, and it was very very hard. It's like which of your children do you like the best? <laughs> uh, yeah, really. Man, okay, so this is where you're now three and a half miles away from the, the launch, right? Right. Okay, so then, so, go ahead, go ahead. No, it's, it's a warm Florida morning. Um, it's a little bit humid, but not oppressive because it's very early. Now, months before, the launch date had been set at 9.32 a.m. on July 16th, okay? Now, if you look at the history of manned spaceflight, it's extremely rare for launches to occur when they're actually scheduled because there's scrubs and there's postponements. Mm -hmm. um, I had, had the ability only to take a week off of my summer job. Oh. And so we knew that if there was more than one postponement, it's likely that we missed the launch. Mm -hmm. And so I was very nervous that morning. Would we act with a launch actually go off on time? Uh, Again, because of this history of almost every launch of, of having problems, uh, mechanical problems, weather problems, things like that. So we're standing there very nervous uh, watching. Um, and, and again, we understood that we were three and a half miles from this huge bomb. Yeah. Uh, 
that that could explode. Um, but the car, the countdown was what NASA calls nominal, which is a kind of funny name for normal. Uh, it was a nominal countdown, and it, it went down, um, and uh, there were no holds or postponements or anything like that. Wow. So um, I can describe the launch itself if you want. Yes, please take me there. Okay. So we're standing there. It's, it's, this, uh, it's, a, part, it's a blue sky, partially cloudy. Uh, parenthetically, um, the launch that's shown in the movie First Man, which came out recently, mm-hmm. uh, has got it all wrong. For, I guess, dramatic reasons, they, they launched into a cloudy sky, which just was not the case. Oh. Uh, and um, so at, at um, ignition, we see at the base of the rocket, and even though it was three and a half miles away, I mean, this thing was 363 feet high, so you could see it very clearly. Mm-hmm. There was a little tiny ball of fire um, at the base of the rocket. And then flames shoot out from either side because there's deflectors on either side. And does the rocket do anything? No, it just sits there for several seconds. Mm-hmm. And one of the surprises to me was how slowly the rocket launched on the path much more than, say, a space shuttle launch. So it just kind of sits there. The flames are pouring out there, and we can't hear anything yet because light travels faster than sound. Right. So it starts to very, very slowly rise off the pad, uh, and uh, apparently it took up uh, about 10 seconds for it actually to clear the tower. Oh. Uh, and so, you know, I was kind of wondering, is there a problem with this? You know, why is it moving so slowly? Uh-huh. Uh, but it was, that was normal. And then as it clears the tower, the sound hits us. Now, the sound of a Saturn V was the most overwhelming sound that I've ever experienced, okay? Um, you heard the sound. It was extremely loud. You felt the sound. The sound was um, attacking your chest. You could physically feel the sound. You could feel the vibration from it. Yeah. And as it lifted up, you could also feel the heat from it. There were seven and a half million pounds of thrust. And I mean, it wasn't like a burning heat, but you could feel it. You could sense the heat coming from this thing as it rose up. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Three and a half miles away. You could feel the heat. Yes. Incredible. So was there a, was there a countdown before launch that you guys heard like there is in the movies or did that not happen? No, it does happen. Um, there was, uh, um, a um, public speaker, you know, Squawk Box, that, um, that uh, transmitted the um, countdown clock um, and transmissions. And the voice of launch control was a, a wonderful guy named Jack King, who had a very distinctive voice, was very, very professional, and really knew his stuff. And it was, it was a pleasure to hear him do the, do the countdown. And I was really great to meet him uh, in later years, just a few years before he passed away. Oh, cool. But um, Jack King was the kind of voice of launch control at the time and also did the uh, moderated the news conferences that I mentioned. Oh, okay. Okay, so man, so this is taking off. What is the, is everybody there just kind of silently watching this? Are they cheering? What's going on? No, they're cheering. uh, uh, They're cheering so loudly that despite the noise of the rocket, you can hear the cheering. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And uh, it was, um, it was amazing. the rocket cleared the tower and then very gradually um, increased the speed as it got higher up. Uh-huh. And then after a couple of minutes, all you could see was a point of light in the sky. And then the sound started to go down, and then you could hear even better the cheering from the crowd. Wow. 
So how long was like, how long were you there from the, from when it first started launching till, you know, it basically disappeared and people started dispersing? Well, the, the rocket was again, like just a pinpoint in the sky after, after what I believe is probably um, maybe three minutes or so. So, I mean, it didn't last a a long time, Mm -hmm. but the churn went on for a while. And then, uh, you know, we kind of hung around to, um, you know, to get quotes from people to, um, you know, talk to people. You know, we talked briefly to Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, the TV performers. Um, like I said before, we talked to Fred Hayes. We ran into um, Gene Cernan, Tom Stafford, Bill Anders. Uh, we're at the VIP site there. Oh, awesome. And you have a, you're with the press, you have a perfect excuse to come up to them and ask a few questions. Right. Well, I mean, I, I was an actual journalist then. I mean, you know, this was not a sham or anything like right, that. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, you know, I, I uh, sent stories to the College Press Service and the Michigan Daily before the mission and um, after the mission. Uh, and uh, so after these events, I, you know, I would go back to the NASA News Center in Cape Canaveral. Uh, they rented in an industrial building for the event because their normal facilities couldn't handle 3,500 journalists. So they rented uh, this two-story structure there. And uh, on the first floor, there was like a stage for um, press events and things like that, news conferences. You know, that's where we saw Warder Von Brown and the other center directors. And then on the second floor were um, contractor tables where all the different uh, companies that were helping Apollo laid out all kinds of like press releases and stuff like that. And then NASA had an abundance of uh, material. I only brought a half a suitcase on purpose. Yeah. And. I loaded it up. So, um, you know, some of the items that they had available were you could get a copy of the actual press, um, of, I'm sorry, of the actual flight plan. Uh, you could get the press release. You could get lunar surface operations. Uh, and then also they, um, NASA stenographers um, recorded voice transcripts of everything that was said from the air to ground communication over the course of the mission. Mm-hmm. So I have like an eight inch stack. Of, um, of voice, voice scripts from 1969 that I shoehorned into my suitcase. Oh my gosh, what a treat. So you got to take, this stuff was all there just for you to take and do you still have it? Yeah, definitely. Um, the most precious thing I have uh, is that one of the things that they had were um, lunar orbit charts. So these were very long in color uh, maps of the traverse of the uh, Apollo 11 across the moon. And uh, these lunar orbit charts, um, years later, 24 years later, I decided to try and get an autograph by Neil Armstrong. Uh, And he very rarely autographed stuff then. Uh, And so I sent it to him in Ohio. Uh, I had an address there, and it got sent back, and Mark refused. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so never giving up, um, I decided to try and send it to and care of the astronaut office in Houston. Uh, they don't do this anymore, but then they would forward mail. So months went by and I didn't see, have anything back. And I thought I had lost this map. Mm-hmm. Um, then on the 25th anniversary of the landing on July 20th, um, 1994, I go out to my mailbox and there's a brown paper envelope and it has a Cincinnati return address. And my hands were literally shaking as I opened this. And it was this lunar orbit chart um, signed by Neil Armstrong to me. Best wishes to Dr. Dave Chudwin, Neil Armstrong. 
Um, and I found out that he had stopped autographing July 20th, 1994, the 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary. And this was probably one of the last things that he had signed. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah, because it's kind of an, you mentioned this in your book, it's kind of an interesting thing where, you know, some astronauts would be willing to sign everything. Some would charge, you know, for their signatures. And now some of them have, you know, like the Neil Armstrong signature is pretty valuable, isn't it even? Yes. Um, probably the least expensive Neil Armstrong signature would be about seven to $800. But it's interesting because he signed, he said that he had signed, you know, un- until he stopped signing in 1994, close to 100,000 autographs. Wow. Uh, through the years because he would get, you know, huge numbers of requests yeah. uh, and, and that. So some people, um, you know, he was happy to, to um, pose for a picture, you know, happy to ha- have handshakes with people. But after that time, he almost never autographed anything. Interesting. Yeah. I could imagine how you would just get kind of fed up with that or, or annoyed a bit, but it's understandable. Wow. So, okay. So then you're, so this launch happens after the launch, you know, you're kind of collecting all those materials, you're writing stuff, sending it back. And then you, you stay there, um, for a few days until they touch down on the moon, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, my friend decided that he wanted to see the moon landing, uh, you know, back at home. Uh, but I wanted to, um, to be there. Now, most of the press uh, flew off to Houston to be at mission control for the landing. Uh, again, I was I, I was a very low budget operation, yeah. and I didn't I didn't have the money to fly to Houston, uh, so I decided to stay there. So instead of having thirty five hundred journalists there, there were um, you know maybe maybe two three hundred journalists left. Huh. Um, either they were foreigners or other people like myself who uh, were too too poor to fly to Houston. <laughs> so was that kind of an advantage then to have less people there? Well, it was a little bit lonely. I mean, it lacked some of the um, excitement. But um, for the, the landing itself, um, I watched it from the launch control center, uh, the, the second floor there, where they had these long press tables. And they had the loudspeakers with the, all the voice commentary. And they had a couple of color television sets, uh, you know, to, to, see, to see the networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not anywhere near as crowded as before. Right. But it was every, every bit is exciting. Man. So what, during that time, was the was there a feeling of, you know, tenseness, nervousness or was it excitement still? No, it was nervousness. OK, um, I think the more people knew about the landing, the more worried they were about success. Yeah. Um, every, everything had to go perfectly uh, because the landing was was risky. Uh, one of the main problems was that the maps and imaging that they had uh, was pretty good, but it didn't show enough resolution to pick out boulders or things like that. So Neil Armstrong's original landing site was was loaded with large boulders, which could have destroyed the lunar shell. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he decided to fly beyond that. Uh, but beyond that was a small crater in which they could not land either because the lunar module would likely tip over. Yeah. Uh, and so he had to keep flying. Uh, and it was very um, nerve-wracking. Uh, and we didn't realize how nerve-wracking it actually was because as he flew over the, the small crater, um, the Capcom, Charlie Duke, uh, called out to him 30 seconds. 
what that meant was you damn well better find a landing site within 30 seconds or you're going to run out of fuel and crash. Yeah. And that. And, you know, Charlie Duke, um, who was kind enough actually to write a, um, a advanced praise for my book, uh, but Charlie Duke, um, you know, famously said when they landed uh, Roger Tranquility Base, and instead of Tranquility, he was so excited, he said Twank. Uh, <laughs> correct himself. Um, you've got about you've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and um, and and again, that was the concern about um, you know landing before they ran out of fuel. But that was one of the reasons they chose Neil Armstrong to, to command this lesion, this mission, is that he had a record of being really cool under pressure. Um, and two examples of that were the Gemini Eight flight where they went into a rapid uh, rotation, so much that, that him and Dave Scott almost passed out. Their, wow. vision, their vision was starting to narrow, and they started to pass out. He was able to um, figure out that it was a thruster problem um, and disengage and save them uh, from what would have been a fatal result in, in a few seconds later. Um, the other time that he showed that, he's, that he had the right stuff was he was testing the lunar LLRV, the uh, Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, which was a way of testing the lunar landing. Um, the other kind of nickname for it was the Flying Bed, uh, uh, it, which had rockets and everything. Anyway, um, it was about to crash, and just before the last second, he ejected from it and saved himself, and otherwise been killed by a crash of the LLRV. Uh, and, uh, so he was known for being a, you know, real, real cool customer under, under pressure and one of the ultimate test pilots. Yeah. He had proven himself, huh? Right. Ooh, okay, man, this is so fun to hear this story from you. So, so after the moon landing, how long do you then stay in Florida? Well, I left the next day, um, cause I had to get back to my easy job selling fancy men's clothing on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was kind of like the summer job of a lifetime. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I could only get one week off of work that summer. So I had another opportunity. Um, there was going to be the next month in August, a music festival in New York called Woodstock. Mm-hmm. So I had to make a choice between Woodstock or Apollo. Oh, <laughs> so I think you made the right choice. What do you think? I- I, I think I did too. You know, the, there were, um, even though Woodstock was unusual, there have been other music festivals since then, but not a first landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Very true. But then later, the they came back in the, you got to see them again in the parade in Chicago, right? Yeah, they were in isolation uh, to protect us against uh, moon organisms, uh, which were, I mean, it sounds kind of outlandish right now and ridiculous. But at the time, um, out of extra caution, uh, the astronauts were kept in isolation uh, and um, they were released to their families. And then on August 13th, 1969, uh, President Nixon orchestrated this, these appearances for him where they went. They had a ticker tape parade in New York in the morning. Uh, they came to Chicago and had a parade in the afternoon. And then at night, they went to Los Angeles, where Nixon met them, and they were given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was all one day. Yeah, it was all one day. And then later, he sent them on this worldwide tour all, you know, all over the world. Uh, but in Chicago, um, 
I um, decided that I wanted to see them again uh, after them returning from the moon. So I pulled out my NASA press pass, even though it wasn't supposed to be used for Chicago. But I pulled out my NASA press pass and I got my um, my Kodak Retina camera, uh, and um, and so I followed them along the first part of the um, the parade and uh, was able to see them go up Michigan Avenue and um, up State. And by that, uh, I got out by the police and. Uh, uh, and uh, and so I missed them going up uh, LaSalle Street, which was the bulk of the tape. I'm sorry, the um, ticker tape parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I saw them at close range and got some good photographs again, which are featured in the book. Yeah. So what was the uh, the feeling and, and vibe of of that parade and the crowd? Oh, it was absolute joy and exhilaration. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were they, they had done they had accomplished the impossible and. People realized, uh, you know, how brave they were, uh, that they took considerable risk, and uh, that that they made it, they made it work. Um, you know, the, the estimates before the flight were that they only had a fifty percent chance of actually landing on the moon and coming back the first try. Wow! Uh, and uh, you know that, and Armstrong accepted that that estimate. Um, there was probably about a ten percent chance of them losing their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the the figures at at the time? So, uh, you know, people really appreciated this, and it was a tremendous accomplishment um, for the United States uh, at at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it must have been different from you know from them initially walking out that morning of the launch to being completely done and have completed everything in their home safe, and they accomplished their mission of landing on the moon, and now it's time to kind of celebrate you know, all the hard work that's been done for the past decade. Well, the, the astronauts were very clear that they were kind of at the top of a pyramid, that there were actually over 400,000 American workers, technicians, administrators of, of different types that had actually worked on a, the Apollo program. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like representatives of that. I mean, they did the flying and everything, but, but uh, you know, they were not the ones that, that uh, did the engineering plans, that built the capsules, that built the rockets. Uh, and, and that, yeah, that's that's good to hear that they were kind of communicating that whole uh, <laughs> that there were so many people that really made this possible. You know, one of the things you might notice is if you look at the mission mission patch for Apollo Eleven, uh-huh. the astronauts would not let their names be put on it. Most of the other mission patches have the names of the astronauts, but there's no astronaut names on the Apollo Eleven patch, and and that was symbolic to them. That uh, you know that it wasn't just them who were flying; that it was the entire country. Yeah. Oh, okay. I like that. Very cool. Whew. I love this. Okay, so I know you're you're like a huge. You've always been interested in space, and you talk about this in your book. So I kind of want to get into kind of you know what where we're at today with our space objectives and stuff like that. So what do you kind of make of sure. the the current you know space, moon, Mars environment? Okay. Well. You know, one of the cha- chapters uh, I title No Bucks, No Buck Rogers. In other words, if you don't get the money, you're not going to fly. And the, with all the other budget pressures, um, the NASA budget now is half of what it was during the Apollo program. Uh, if, if you took a look at what the, the highest uh, budget point for NASA was in 1966, when they were getting ready all the facilities and rockets and stuff like that, 
if you took the the you know current dollar amounts of that, the NASA budget would be forty four billion dollars now, and it's only twenty billion. So we're we're operating in space on less than half of the equivalent of what we were, uh, you know, fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of other demands on the budget. What's really turning the tide and making the big difference is two things. First of all, is international cooperation. Uh, the space station. Uh, International Space Station has important contributions from many other countries, from from Russia, from Japan, from Canada, from the European Space Agency, uh, and they've contributed to the cost uh, of the International Space Station. Uh, It would not have been possible on a budget with just the U.S. And in in fact, President Reagan proposed that uh, earlier version called Space Station Freedom, but there wasn't enough money to, to do it. And when it became clear that it wasn't feasible, then the scope of it was downsized a little bit, but then these other countries were, were brought in. Uh, so, for example, the, the NASA has a plan to put a, a space station around the moon called Lunar Orbital uh, Gateway. Mm-hmm. And this gateway project is also going to be international as well, with um, different countries providing different modules. So by cost-sharing, that makes it more feasible. But the most exciting development um, has been commercial space. Uh, what my friend Rod Pyle calls two point zero, uh, and um, this is the rise of commercial companies, uh, largely fueled by internet billionaires. So, for example, Elon Musk's uh, uh, SpaceX, uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, Blue Origin, uh, the late Paul Allen's. Uh, um, uh, cooperation with Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people are spending a lot of their own money on space, augmenting what we can do beyond just the NASA budget, which is stuck around $20 billion a year. Uh, for example, um, very quietly, Jeff Bezos's company, Blue Origin, uh, is planning the first um, space tourist flights uh, in competition with Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. But they have a spacecraft called New Shepard, uh, and within the next year or two, they're going to be sending people into space. Now, it's only going to be a six-minute six of weightlessness and uh, 15-minute suborbital flight, but it's still taking people in, into space. And um, Bezos, with, um, uh, Bezos with New Shepard, uh, it's been estimated that he's spending $1 billion a year, that's, B with a, that's billion with a B, of his own money. Um, on Blue Origin, uh, if if you go down to the Cape, if you go down to the Cape, like I was a couple weeks ago, um, just outside the Kennedy Space Center, Blue Origin has this huge, huge new factory that they've built there uh, that you drive by on the way to the Cape Kennedy Vis- uh, Visitor Center. Uh-huh. And so, I really think that um, what's going to be needed is a combination of NASA international cooperation and these commercial companies uh, to get things going. Mm-hmm. Do you feel kind of optimistic about all those coming together? Yes, I, I actually do. I mean, for a while, I was very pessimistic. I mean, you know, 50 years ago, um, when I was at Apollo 11, the thought that 50 years later, the U.S. would need to rely on the Russians to take our astronauts into orbit. I mean, you know, I would have been labeled absolutely insane yeah. uh, at, at the time. Nobody ever would have expected that. Right. Uh, and 
by in 1969, they thought that Americans could get to the moon, get to Mars in the late 18, 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are all these kind of unrealistic uh, plans. But I, I think that the, the current situation is the best that I've seen it in, in years. And there are going to be hiccups along the way, like the crew dragon blowing up, uh, you know, that SpaceX just had. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are hiccups there. There are going to be other problems, too. But the long-term outlook, I think, is very optimistic. Yeah, that kind of stuff is inevitable. But do you... Um... I feel like there's a lot more kind of excitement in space kind of being built up, especially with this may be my like my biases and of what I see on social media and everything with, you know, at least Elon Musk and SpaceX and everything being done. It feels like people are talking about it more. and There's a lot of excitement. Do you think it's possible to get back to that 1960s feeling of, you know, going to the moon or going now we're going to Mars, hopefully, or back to the moon without that kind of competition um of beating the russians well what about beating the chinese um because i think that there's a a real concern um about china in the long run uh and this is a very controversial subject but um the chinese space program is dominated by the chinese military uh china is um not a does not have a political democracy so they can set a long-term goal and then follow through with it because the same people are going to be in charge for years and years and years. It's not a new um, four-year election cycle. Yeah. And so I, I think that, you know, there's the tortoise and the hare uh, that the Chinese may have started behind, but they're very, very gradually um, getting better and better. We're still ahead of them in technology. But, you know, if you look in the long-term future, 50 or 100 years, uh, you know, we may have uh, foreign competition uh, forcing us to, to take care of this. Wow. So is China being kind of cooperative with us then as far as like, uh, you know, uh, space stations and stuff like that? Or is it more competitive vibe, do you feel? Well, it's competitive. And part of that is the United States fault because of concerns about Chinese stealing technology. Um, they've forbidden, there's been a, a congressional resolutions and uh, actual laws prohibiting NASA from cooperating with China on manned spaceflight. Oh, okay. Interesting. So now we have the plan to go back to the moon, correct? That was a, that's a NASA objective now? Yes. So why is that? Why go back to the moon? Yeah. Okay. Well. You know, there's some people that say Mars first, that we should head out to Mars, okay? Um, a round-trip mission to Mars would take approximately three years with present technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some new pr- propulsion proposals, um, you know, for like ion thrusters and things like that that might make it sooner. But basically, the current architecture is a three-year mission, okay? Um, the moon, you can get to in three days. Yeah. And... In terms of um, safety, as far as you know, radiation exposure. In terms of uh, you know, human factors, uh, it's it's much easier to test everything in in um, what's being described as cis lunar space. Cis lunar space is a space between the Earth and the Moon's orbit, and so that's why there's a plan to have this small man-tended space station called Gateway uh, there within the next few years. So. Th- the moon is a lot more practical, and I'm 
you know, certainly one of those who am a moon first person. Uh, I think eventually we should go to Mars, but I just don't think the technology is available now. And as a physician, I'm concerned about the, um, the human factor concerns as well. Uh, and if you look at some of the medical issues involved in long-term space flight, which a, moon, a Mars mission would require, uh, there's problems with the immune system, there's problems with bone density, um, there's problems with vision, uh, and especially problems with radiation, with cosmic rays. The Van Allen belt protects us against cos a lot of the cosmic rays. But if you're out between the Earth and the moon, um, you're going to need to really take that into account. Right. So is the moon kind of a good test bed for all this for, for going to Mars? In many ways, yes. Uh, either the moon or in orbit around the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the architectures for going to Mars would be to assemble uh, the, the um, rocket complex to go to Mars to do that at, in lunar orbit with, with, at the gateway. Oh. And so use the gateway as, as a gateway. In other words, to, to send off things further out. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the um, physics of it, the Earth has a very deep gravity well, and it takes a lot of energy to get things up into Earth orbit. Once you're in Earth orbit, it takes much less energy um, to go to the moon or to go from the, the moon further on in space. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then, so are we looking at uh, colonizing the moon at all? Well, especially the Europeans have been interested in that. The European Space Agency has had several um, international conferences about establishing a lunar base uh, in the um, late 1920, late, I'm sorry, late 2020s and 2030s. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a lot of interest in that. And, um, you know, at, at the press conference I went to with Werner von Braun, von Braun was asked, what's the significance of flying to the moon? And he compared it to when amphibians first left the oceans to go on land. Um, at the time, I thought that was very much a hyperbole. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, through the years, the more I've thought about it, the more I realize that that's true. That um, you know, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, the Russian uh, rocket pioneer, um, said the Earth is the cradle of civilization, but we don't stay in the cradle forever. You know, something to that effect. And so I think the colonization of the moon is going to be the first step of extending um, human presence throughout the, the solar system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's planets, there's asteroids, uh, there's comets, there's moons, uh, and there's billions and billions of cubic kilometers of space uh, within the solar system. So I really think that that's the future of, of humankind. Wow. And so I've heard it been kind of equated to, you know, backing up the, the human race, you know, like it, putting us on a second hard drive so, you know, we don't go extinct and stuff like that. Like that's kind of maybe a big uh benefit for colonizing mars or something like that like what kind of what do you think about that no i i, I very much agree with that you know one of my favorite um non-fiction space books uh, from the early apollo program was a book by the italian journalist called oriana falacci and she wrote a fascinating book called if the sun dies and that kind of encapsulates uh you know taking a long-term perspective uh you know Look in time perspective of billions of years, eventually the sun will die. You know, it'll gradually burn.
burn up its fuel and then expand and destroy the um, destroy the solar system. But that's on an order of billions of years. Um, in the next hundreds of years, though, um, an asteroid strike, um, uh, global warming leading to a, a turning Earth into Venus, uh, nuclear war, uh, all these other possibilities could potentially destroy the human race. And so it's been suggested that um, space colonization is kind of a lifeboat for humanity. Uh, and um, one of the proponents of this uh, before he passed away was the, the great physicist Stephen Hawking uh, suggested that we had better, well, get some of us off Earth to prevent the destruction of, of humankind. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious as your, because your perspective, I guess we should mention that you, you didn't continue, you're not a, a journalist for NASA anymore. You're, you became a physician, correct? Right. I'm an allergist immunologist. Right. So I'm curious, do you feel that we can kind of overcome any obstacles in regards to radiation and bone density kind of stuff with living on a, on the moon or in a space station or on Mars? Well, the problem is not so much being on the moon and Mars uh, in terms of because there's gravity there. And a lot of the ill health effects uh, from being in space is microgravity. Um, and so that, uh, you know, even though the, the gravity on the moon is only one sixth of that on Earth, there's still enough that, that it helps with some of these problems. The biggest um, problem uh, on the moon and Mars, actually on the surface, is, is, like I said before, radiation. And there are strategies to mitigate that. Um, moon or Mars colonies would be, found, would be made under the soil, uh, the so-called regolith, mm -hmm. uh, and that would give protection. Uh, in terms of flying to Mars, there have been suggestions that uh, the fuel tanks, say water tanks and things like that, be placed around the uh, inner core that had the people in it so that these water tanks would protect them and shield them from, from radiation. So there are some strategies for this. But we don't really have enough um, you know, long-term information. Scott Kelly just did a magnificent mission, you know, spending nearly a year in space with his brother Mark as control on Earth. Mm -hmm. And NASA has just proposed two additional long-term missions um, uh, to uh, in, in Earth orbit. And I think the more information we get on that, the, the better it'll be. Okay. And so that was kind of to study the effects because he was in basically microgravity for that whole time, right? Right, right. Okay. And so that's kind of studying the effects of that. Is that, um, so that would be the concern if, if we're kind of living in space stations or something, correct? Right. Unless there was artificial gravity in the space stations, um, you know, not in current ones, but in these, you know, um, visionary plans for um, space stations, for example, that Werner von Braun had in the 1950s, they had this notion of these um, spinning round satellites uh, in orbit, very large ones, and the spinning would give um, would give artificial gravity. Uh, but again, this is far beyond our, our current designs. Okay, would would artificial gravity basically alleviate um, the issues? Yes, it would greatly help them. It, okay. it really, it really would. Uh, there's all kinds of effects of um, microgravity on the human body. Uh, you know, there's uh, nothing is pulling the fluid or anything down to the legs, so all the fluid in the body kind of rises up. And this is why astronauts on orbit, you know, have these real puffy faces uh, because the the fluid is 
is all you know isn't pulled down by gravity like it should be. Huh. Interesting. How we be, you know, I mean, we we evolved to live on Earth, so that's those are the conditions we need to simulate. Right. I mean, another issue is um, is balance and vestibular. There's something called space adaptation syndrome, which some people get more than others. Uh, and um, Frank Borman on Apollo 8 uh, had some of this with throwing up and nausea and vomiting, but they didn't even know what it was. And then one of the most celebrated episodes was Rusty Schweikert in Apollo 9 uh, was unable to do a complete spacewalk uh, because, uh, you know, if you vomited inside a closed spacesuit, uh, that was going to be a real problem. Uh, <laughs> And it's, it's kind of a funny story. I was seated at the same table as Rusty Schweikert at a Space Fest banquet. We were eating lunch, and I made the mistake of asking him about space adaptation while he was eating. Uh, and he did not appreciate that at all. <laughs> this is something I was curious about, because you, you, know, you seem so informed and up-to-date on uh, everything going on currently with the space industry. Do you... What kind of what what's your go to, you know, website or blog or news source or TV channel or anything for where you get all your information? Well, I, I get it from multiple sources. Um, you know, uh, space dot com is, is a very helpful online source. Um, as far as space collecting and memorabilia, uh, there's a, a wonderful website that Robert Perlman started in 1999 called Collect Space dot com. OK. Uh, and is, is excellent. Uh, and, um, on Facebook, uh, there's a wonderful group called space hipsters, uh, that has over 16,000, uh, of the most, uh, um, interesting people I've ever met. Uh, I, I just was, was a speaker at their spring, spring field trip and spoke uh, last Saturday at the Neil Armstrong Air and Space Museum in Wapakoneta, Ohio. Uh, and we had about um, 50 people there from the, from the group from all over the country. Uh, and so, um, there's a wealth of information there. And besides them on Facebook, there's a whole bunch of other, um, interest groups related to different aspects of space. So there's, you know, a, a interest group related to SpaceX as one, uh, and, uh, uh, there's one to Apollo project history and, and a bunch of others. So there's a lot of online resources that we didn't have at all back, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool how this information is so readily available. It's so fun to dig into it and, and read about the history, but then all the new stuff coming out, too. I love it. Man, well, David, this was incredible. I love hearing your story. You're an awesome storyteller. It was so fun to hear all this stuff. Um, so we got your book. Uh, I was a teenage space reporter right here. We both got it. <laughs> I'll throw a link to this. It's on Amazon. Uh, anywhere else we should send people? Well, it's in brick and mortar Barnes and Noble stores in, in some cities. It's not across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, in the Chicago area here, it's, it's available in most Barnes and Noble stores uh, and, um, and in some others. But the, the most assured way to get it is to get it online uh, through a bookselling website. It's available with all the bookselling websites. And it just went on sale um, on, on Thursday uh, in the United Kingdom. and. Uh, other places around the world uh, for online booksellers too. Awesome. Well, congrats. It's, it's an awesome book. It's, you know, the, the photos are beautiful. It's well-written. Very, very nice. I, I really enjoyed it. Great. It's been fun talking and uh, uh, it's, um, 
again, it's, it's hard to believe that it's 50 years ago. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's very cool that we have all this, you know, the, the 50th anniversary coming up and all these events and, and stuff coming up to, to kind of re re spark it a bit. It, and it feels like it's a cool time when, you know, if space is kind of taking off again and we're, and we're going places. Well, just real quickly, I wrote the book for two audiences. One was for people my age, you know, in their, their 60s and 70s, because it's, it's kind of a nostalgia trip, bringing them back to what it was like 50 years ago. But I especially wrote it for younger people, young adults, uh, who, um, who weren't there for these events, but to try and give them a sense of the excitement and sense of wonder we had at, at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I've been like really loving and feeling is that that sense of excitement i've been digging into a lot of stuff and and talking with people like you who are there so it's it's very fun to hear so yeah i mean it was awesome thanks david really appreciate you being on and and sharing your story Thank thank you very much for having me Well, there you go. That was episode 60. Hope you enjoyed listening to David and hearing all of his stories about being at NASA for the Apollo 11 launch and mission. I definitely enjoyed it. So that was part three of the 50th anniversary moon landing series that I'm doing. The fourth and final part is coming out next week. So watch out for that. Uh, Happy 50th anniversary moon landing day coming up here on uh, July something, uh, July 20th, 2019. And uh, thanks for listening. That's that's the end of the episode. You can leave now if you want. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you shared this with your friends and family over social media or through word of mouth in person speaking to them like humans do. Uh, if you do do it digitally, you can tag me uh, on Instagram at Curiosityness Podcast. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I have a website called curiosityness.com. You can get a free sticker if you want. It looks like uh, 3D glasses. They're pretty cool. So I'm told by myself. Uh, that's at curiosityness.com slash free sticker. And that's all I have to say. So thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye bye.